This is Intertractional, an exploration of Star Trek through an intersectional feminist lens. Star Trek is both a reflection of our society and an aspiration for our future. The stories it tells shape our world. Intersectionality explores intersecting forms of oppression and how they affect individuals with compound identities. Star Trek is for feminists. <laughs> are we recording? Yeah, we are. Know. Okay, good. We are. Okay, sweet. Hi, Becca. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Intertrekkies. What's up, y'all? Hola. <laughs> we are here talking about this episode, which is called The Impossible Box. I just want to make lots of vagina jokes. Oh, my God. And I'm going to say that now so that I make as few as possible. <laughs> Do you have any vagina jokes or you're just like, this is... I mean, it feels like it's such a straight line that it's not even worth attempting. Yeah. Do you remember that song that was like, I want to play with your Xbox? I don't remember oh that my song. God, it was terrible. It well, was like, let me play with your Xbox because I know X marks all the spots. It was really bad. <laughs> Yeah, so the impossible box, it's like a puzzle box. That a Rubik's kinda, Cube. A Rubik's Cube that with you can death inside. put stuff in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, she's also the impossible box. Exactly. The mystery is the impossible box. The Borg Cube is a box which contains mystery. I wish that something more interesting was going on with these siblings other than them just like generally being mean to each other and talking about how they have different strategies for solving this mystery. Yes. They're very one note. Yeah. Yes. It's irritating. It's not interesting that the sister character is just like kill all things all the time. She's no depth whatsoever. And he barely yeah. does either. I feel like more could be going on there. Like she could be getting additional pressure from Commodore Romulan spy. Right, exactly. Yeah. We don't know anything about their parents or like why they're siblings or like why they have this relationship with each other or don't or something. Why she just like touches his face all the time and is, is it mean. incestual? Is it abusive? I think it's both. Who's I mean like incest sibling? is kind of by definition abusive, right? Did he really have a brother who died? Wait, he had a brother? Oh, that's right. In the very first episode, yeah. he had a brother. And they just they just fucking dropped that. Yeah, none of that at all. No. Oh, my God. I yeah. fucking hate him. Fuck Dr. Yes. Fuckboy. And not yes. in a good way. Yes. Anyway. Okay, well, now I have like 10 more questions to ask Michael Chabon on his Instagram. You guys, <laughs> Michael Chabon answers questions about the series on his Instagram. Uh, the best answers then get like re-reported on Trek Movie. Mm -hmm. And it's... It's really great. It's like mildly Talmudic. Like he just, <laughs> he's able to to really reason through his decisions and he's being really transparent about it, which is great. But um, I keep being like, shit, what should I ask him? And then. Well, you asked him, where the fuck is Dr. Nashala? I did ask him, where is Dr. Nashala? I haven't checked his responses in like a half hour. So I don't know if he got to that question mm. yet. Uh, where is Dr. Nashala? So yeah, if you know. forgot who she is, which is like understandable. <laughs> Because she was on screen for all of, like, three minutes. Yes. She was a character in episode two who was um, African-American, black, mm -hmm. and a trill, mm -hmm. and a doctor. And Soji, like, flirted with her and, like, showed her the ropes. And then she expressed interest in Dr. Fuckboy and has never shown up again. Like, right. what was the point of that? I don't know. We'll get to a part in this episode where she could have very easily been 
there for Soji as yes. like a friend and yes. confidant and she's not and it's annoying. Or she could even be there like, why are you spending all this time with this dude? Like, I'm yeah. like, if she's going to be the best friend trope, at least show the best up. Friend. Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> Anything. Because I was like, I'm like, oh, she maybe she's going to be the friend. No, where is she? I don't know. She's nowhere. This is stupid. It's a bummer. So let us begin at the beginning. Yes. We are in a creepy hallway. Baby Soji is uh, having a nightmare. Present day Soji is having a nightmare as baby Soji. Yeah, she's a child in her dream. Mm -hmm. And she steps into a creepy hallway that may or may not be referential of The Shining, because they're twins, but Mm -hmm. they're not both there in Mm -hmm. the hall. Then she, like, tries to go into her dad's lab in their creepy hallway home with like lots of rain we see the orchids we know from like episode one that uh her dad was of geneticist botanist or something and like invented his own type of orchid by splicing things together Mm -hmm. was the story that dodge told picard so there's a lot of orchids so she wakes up from her nightmare and who's in bed with her dr fuckboy Right there, being like, oh. She's even exceptionally put together for like a TV wake up. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, she's got a dewy skin yes. and like her hair is just very straight and not rumpled at all. And he is also there being his like rumply self. And we're just like right back to he wants to know everything about her, but has put up all of these boundaries where she can't know anything about him. And it's so one-sided and uneven. And we're just like continue to be like, girl, get the fuck out. Yeah, yeah. I would not. I've been in an abusive relationship and I would not stay in this relationship. I'm like, what? Who would who would let someone talk to you that way? It's like I'm very frustrated. Yeah, with it. I mean, I think there's a certain there, I think there's a certain appeal about somebody who's like very interested in knowing everything about you. Mm. But it's only healthy if they are also willing to reveal themselves. Yeah. Like, even a little bit. Like, she points out that she doesn't even know his real name. Mm -hmm. And she knows, like, everything about Romulans because apparently they have many names that they use for different situations, uh, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's cool. It's like this, like, what is your true name? The power of a true name kind of trope here, which is, uh, like, we're just going to call back again to Our Opinions Are Correct, where they did a kind of like a power of names episode recently. Yeah. Recommend. Yeah, and it's cool because it's like we all have our outward facing person and our inner, like the person who we reveal around our family and the person who we only reveal to our romantic partners. So that's very apt and like Mm -hmm. having a name for those different situations is kind of cool. Um, But she's again being like, I'm supposed to be this person to you and you're not telling me that name. Instead of being like, you're right, I'm not being honest, I'm sorry, or like deflecting, he just like storms out of the room, which is very manipulative. I'm reminded of like what mm. we talked about with Neelix, you know, of Mm -hmm. like whenever anyone has an emotional reaction that displeases you, you just like shut them down and like punish it. Right. Like by your silence. And it's like a classic like abuser tactic. Yeah. He even shoots off the last blow in the while he's storming away when she says Narek and he says, That's not my name. <sighs> what a butt. Oh my god. Um, yeah. It's been two weeks. Mm. Like they're like deep into this relationship right now and it's oh, two you're, weeks. You're right. Yeah. I mean that also might be part of why she's putting up with his shitty behavior because it's like very early and mm. like 
She might be doing that thing where you're like, I'm not going to ask too many questions. I'm just going to lightly tease you about the things that are driving me insane. Right. And it could also be that she's like knowledgeable enough about Romulan culture to attribute some of like a lot of this really bad boyfriend behavior to Romulan cultural versus human cultural differences. Mm -hmm. And like, maybe that's how she's rationalizing it to herself. But fuck that. Yeah, no, I still I still feel like I'm like two weeks is early enough to like get out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. come on. Okay, so we have these these same notes being hit again. And I mean, I like this episode, but it's just these first two scenes. I like the stuff with her dream, but it's like the stuff with her and Dr. Fuckboy, the stuff with Dr. Fuckboy and like Dr. Sister, Sister Fuckboy. Sister, Sister Fuckboy. Oh my God. I mean, but sister, really. Sister Incest. <laughs> We've seen this again and again, and they're not making it more interesting. Although it does... It does kind of come to a head in this episode. So some things are moving forward, I guess. So we're immediately cut back to El Serena, La Serena. La Serena, yeah. La Serena. La, yeah, la, it's La, la, la Serena, it's a, yeah. It's a mermaid. It's a siren. It's the not first a, time I said it on the podcast, I said El Serena, and that's incorrect. Mm-hmm. And Aggie is lying to Picard about Bruce's death. Right. Elnor shows up. Elnor shows up. And there's like no conference room on this ship. So anyone can just walk in on any conversation at any time. Yeah. So nobody's doing the like knock. That's a beep noise, you know. Yep. No privacy. Yeah. The complete opposite of a Romulan ship, presumably. Elnor, I'm imagining, doesn't have a a grand sense of privacy, having Mm. been raised in absolute candor. Certainly not. So he just thinks he can join this conversation Although he does wonder if he's in-butting. Oh my god, he's so cute. He says, oh, I should out-butt, shouldn't I? And was I in-butting? It's so cute. The writing on that is so great. He is the best, and we should have him talking more and everybody else talking less. (laughs) Yeah, he's, he's really adorable. Aggie is, she fairly deftly covers up her murder, or Picard is too trusting, because, um, Elnor identifies that she's hiding something instead of kind of pushing on that he's like oh no i said something that hurt you and like i'll back off he's good at reading people but he's also very like maybe hypersensitive to how he is making them feel i forget how or why but they end up talking about the borg in this conversation yeah and picard has like basically he kind of freaks out on them maybe they've changed change The Borg, they coolly assimilate entire civilizations, entire systems, in a matter of hours. They don't change. They metastasize. This is like going on while he's almost certainly experiencing like PTSD symptoms. He's starting to have flashbacks. It's very heavily emphasized that he is still living with the trauma of having been assimilated by the Borg. And it's it's similar to what we saw in the in Iborg, the episode where he met Hugh. It's similar to what we saw in First Contact, 
where um, like once his crewmates were assimilated, he no longer, he didn't for a second treat them as someone he could save. He was just treated them like objects. Totally. And horrified Alfre Woodard. <laughs> She's like, wait, didn't you know him? Yeah. And so we haven't, this is showing that like not much progress at all has been made on this front. Yeah. And I'm starting to have a, have a more complex read of this where in a way the collective were also like part of him, right? Destroying the Borg must have also hurt him, even though he was assimilated against his will and it was an act of violence and his primary concern is that he assisted in the decimation at Wolf 359. He eventually, like, after he was liberated from the Borg and then became somebody who was dealing blows to them, he also has a history of being part of that. And in a way, he himself has to extra demonize the Borg yeah. in order to be okay with how he is today. Unlike Seven of Nine, who had the benefit of like a full crew of people helping her find her humanity and like Janeway being an armchair psychologist with her, Picard has basically dealt with this on his own. He was like resistant to Deanna helping him. And his way, he's just like, I'm back. I'm me. That didn't really happen. And he just like completely denies that part of himself. Yeah, he has really not gotten treatment, uh, at least in so far as we know. He's just got like all of these PTSD symptoms. Yeah. Um, he literally starts having flashbacks, yeah. both while he's on the ship and once he gets to the Borg cube. He's like articulating to the rest of the crew in like a scene or two from now, just that he's really expecting to find Borg. Like when Eleanor says, like seven of nine, and he's like, no, not at all like seven of nine. Right. And I'm like, really? These people are actually quite like seven of nine. They're very similar. Then they're, they're more like him in seven of nine than they are like actually assimilated Borg. And it must have to do with him not being able to think about it. But I mean, I remember we talked about this when we watched First Contact, that he is not able to imagine that other people can come out of this, even though he came out of it. Right. It is in a way, he is admitting that he has not come back from it. Like Mm. he in the last episode, he and Seven had a whole conversation about not being able to really truly feel human. Mm-hmm. Um, because of having had this experience. I've sort of been wondering about his character arc. He's really drifted into arrogance mm-hmm. as he's gotten older and like continues to think that his opinion should matter the most, which I don't know, maybe that's like a negative side effect from being a, a ship's captain. Like he got to be in charge all the time. Yeah, not just any ship's captain, the Enterprise, the, flag the flagship, <laughs> the like diplomat. There was a whole... I forget which scene it was, but like people rattling off his credentials about being uh-huh. like the envoy to the Klingon Empire uh-huh. and blah, 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 other was, things. It was Irish Rios. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes. Um, but part of like what we've seen with him, with the Vashti Romulans and with Rafi is that he kind of has this history of, of, uh, like beginning to help people and then abandoning them Hmm. when it doesn't work out or it doesn't serve him anymore. I I don't know. Maybe he's trying to atone for right now. Maybe he just really misses data. I don't know what the difference is, but I feel like we see that again in this episode with his behavior toward Rafi. Hmm. 
Yeah, he... God, the, and, the way that he just kind of uses her and then doesn't support her at all is really upsetting. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if this is part of what... it did, This didn't occur to me until what you had just said, but I'm wondering if this is part of the humanity that he lost. Hmm. You know, the lack of an ability to empathize anymore. Yeah, yeah that, his, that all of his humanitarian efforts are sort of um, performative at this point. But then there's also, like, you know, three seasons and many movies of... of his behavior where he wasn't really dealing with this at all and yeah. he seemed to be functioning like totally normal and so yeah i don't know so maybe, maybe this he is was, where he is now this or? is just where he is and maybe it's like maybe just being like living alone at the chateau for so long or not alone alone but like not being fully self-actualized as the captain or the admiral or whatever it is that he has been dwelling on this in a yeah. way that makes it more severe. Also, he doesn't have, like, his crew of best friends anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes me think about, like, how, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like, she was way less effective when she was separated from all of her best friends. And there's, like, this trope of uh, heroes needing to surround themselves with, support friendships yeah found family chosen family yeah yeah and that like maybe the people who he was around were like keeping him grounded in Mm -hmm. a way that is no longer happening he's become unmoored i think that's true (sighs) yeah so picard's in a weird place yes aggie's in a weird place yeah elnor doesn't really get what's going on and then yes. we go to the next scene where uh, Rios is playing soccer with himself, but mm-hmm. not with any of his holograms. Mm-hmm. And then Aggie walks in and she's like, what's up, sexy? <laughs> I know. It was really, it was really funny because I, we didn't talk about this last episode, but like right after, uh, right after Aggie punches out the. The robot recruiter. The robot recruiter, the, the like holographic <laughs> robot recruiter. She's then like, ha ha, punches and like goes over to Rios is like, pow, pow, pow with her little <laughs> fist. And I was like, oh God, is that going to be a thing? Is she into him? Is that going to happen? And like that with like the episode before, the one that I wasn't on, but you and Molly were Where talking Molly about Where Molly was like, shut me up, kiss. And I was like, no way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like also that she was like, Oh, you like to read real books? My daddy liked to read real books. And I was like, yes. oh, God, she thinks he's her dad. She's going to hook up with him. Oh, my God. Gross. And <laughs> gross, gross, gross. But it's a trope, right? Like, it's a real trope. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, I think, but I also think that it's in character for this particular person because of who she previously had a relationship. Yes. Professor Maddox. Right. Who, for right. whom so she was almost certainly like, his grad student. Father like, fig- like yeah. authority figure type men. Yeah. She says, well, I've never slept with a captain of anything before and it's like what you just you she has like one kiss with him and then she's like i've never slept with, i'm like whoa okay so she is really she quickly is, telling him where she wants to take it let's go and then they do i think yeah i was looking at this of all of the things that she says about how this is a bad idea and she's like in a really lonely and um sad place you are my bad decision and then he's like yeah let's do this i just like sat there looking at that scene and being like if the genders were reversed we would be judging 
Captain Rios as a woman for like not respecting him herself, taking sex from somebody when it's offered, no matter like when, yeah, when you're being used and when it's not in like a healthy context. I'm wondering, like, what is his level of emotional intelligence? Because he he offers like a lot of performative listening here. That's true. Um, and I'm like, is he really concerned about her? Like, he keeps being like, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. What do you want? And then she's like, uh, uh. and he's like, will this help? Mm, and yeah. so it's like, he's consent. He's making sure she's consenting. It made me like him. I'm like, oh, a listening man. <laughs> a listening man who reads like deep philosophy and has a beard. Take me now and plays soccer. I mean, he's very sexy. I'm glad we see him like drink out of the bottle because I was just yeah. like, what if she hit on one of his holograms? Oh my God, right. Like, how would she, how would you know? <laughs> how would you know? I mean, well, they he's all like, have different, that's why they all have different accents. So that's the you know. emergency soccer hologram. <laughs> Emergency soccer hologram. Uh, the emergency hold me now. <laughs> what is the the nature of your thirst emergency? What is the nature of your thirst emergency? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I mean, Molly and I did speculate that he has an emergency sex worker hologram <laughs> stashed in there somewhere that's also him. So yes. this tracks. This like follows on from that. What possessed him to play barefoot soccer with a flask in his pocket? I don't know. Also, he asked sir did i wake you so like what time of day is it that yeah. he's playing soccer and drinking hard liquor <laughs> what is happening everybody's I, I hard drinking him. now on this yeah. show in star trek and i'm like well, bring back the tea we now go to the romcest scene which we talked Rom-cest. about a little bit sister checks in sister like, checks in it's like why do you love your rubik's cube and he's like fuck you i'm gonna figure this out she has dreams right and like i think the things that i liked from that scene is that she says something along the lines of you keep fidgeting with her until she opens like that stupid box another vagina joke <laughs> and um, <laughs> they have this whole conversation about like why would an android dream i just couldn't help but thinking about the ha- do androids dream of electric sheep absolutely which, this is absolutely a reference yes, right definitely yeah. a reference we we saw the asimov book in picard's study on earth mm-hmm. yeah so we're getting all of these like hints of canonical sci-fi robot literature uh do androids dream of electric sheep is a philip k dick novel oh, okay um which is what blade runner is based on i feel like data was like 25 before he had a dream because he had to work on he had to like yeah. make real effort in order to be able to have dreams and then now they're postulating that that she dreams like because of her invented personality she has to dream to like as a place for the cognitive dissonance to go you know like when you when you repress feelings you end up working them out in her dream so like he's like this is a placeholder for it but i think it's actually her trying to figure it out we she's don't we been don't destabilized enough in her fake personality that she's that it's coming up okay so yeah so that's that scene gross incest dr fuckboy points out to her that every time she talks to her mom 
it takes exactly 70 seconds. Mm -hmm. That's an anomaly. And it's been like flagged. She's talking to him about trying to talk to her mom about this dream and that she must have fallen asleep while she was talking to her mom. And so they have this whole conversation about reinforcing the fact that her mom doesn't exist and is a bot. Part of its function is to put her to sleep when they're having a conversation. She then sort of like tries to take control of her behavior by calling her mom and be like, we didn't finish this conversation. Mm -hmm. Her mom then tells her she should probably go to sleep. Right. And she stabs herself in the hand with, I don't know, a knife that she keeps at her desk or something. Yeah, it looks like some sort of artistic tool, something. Yeah, and uh, that works for like a second, but she just witnesses her, the mom bot kind of like glitching and repeating herself until she does fall asleep. Right. And then when she wakes up, then she's like, what the fuck is going on? Starts tearing her room apart. I thought she was Mm -hmm. about to like leave. I thought she was like packing or something, but instead she like pulls out all of her photographs And starts, like, carbon dating them with her magic wand. Mm Mm-hmm. And she freaks out because, like, everything that she owns is approximately 37 months old. This is just another piece of evidence that her life is a lie. (laughs) And it's really destabilizing. You know, like, she's, like, Gen Z or something, but it feels very millennial to me. Or it's, like, she's in that stage of her life where everyone she knows and loves is not near her anymore, mm. right? Like, her her mom is far away. Her sister lives in a different city. Um, I mean, this is something I relate to. This is, like, you're yeah. in that, that stage of your life where, where you've left. The things that connect you back to that place are really important and meaningful. Mm-hmm. And none of them are real. Right. This is especially when I was wondering, where the fuck is Dr. Nashala? Instead of going and confiding in your boyfriend who you obviously don't trust and well shouldn't, go to somebody else. Just like literally anybody else. But there's a woman there who was like friendly and seemed open to forming some sort of meaningful relationship. Yeah. And she could be working that out with her. Absolutely. That would be a great thing for her to be doing in the script. It would still be like... uh, It would still be best friend trope. Yeah, Yeah, best friend trope, but... Yeah, or, like, go to her mentor, like, Mr. Hugh. <laughs> Does yeah. he have a last name? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> so then we go back again mm-hmm. to La Serena, and now we're talking about the uh, how pe- how anybody is going to get onto the artifact. Picard's like, well, we have no other option than to go the Coat Milat way of absolute candor and be exactly who we are, and... Then he ropes a drunken Rafi into calling up one of her BFFs and uh, begging for a diplomatic clearance for him to get onto the cube. So she, like, uses up her social capital in that relationship, gets him what he wants, and then they all applaud, and she goes back into her hole. She's just being so used here mm-hmm. without any sensitivity to the very clear distress that she's in. Yeah, I'm not sure that she... I mean, while she's very good at pretending to be sober and, like, and very intelligent in this conversation and, like, knows, like, the best diplomatic and like manipulative angle to to take with her friend i don't think that she's actually sober enough to like consent to doing this no like when she stands up she basically falls over i'm once again disappointed in picard for being content that that he got what he wanted and for not being like 
concerned at all about how in bad shape she is. Yeah, he's going to need to have a reckoning, I yeah. think, later this season. I think that they're being very clever. I'm sort of reminded about like the fallout from when Luke Skywalker came back and he had totally um, become this like jaded older man who had like abandoned all of his principles and people were super Mm. upset and like we see something similar with picard but it's so much more subtle that like no one has had an outcry like oh this isn't the picard we remember Mm -hmm. but as we gradually get to know him we are like this is not the picard that we remember like he has disappointed people and like he's starting to disappoint us yeah he's changed into a person who is hyper focused on the end goal that he's no longer concerned about what the means are much more janeway like a bit more janeway (laughs) yeah that's true uh that's very true (laughs) people demonize janeway for it all the time so it'll be interesting to see the other thing that i thought about this scene was like rafi at the end of this call her friend is like never call me again just her the way that her face falls in that moment is so heartbreaking I, I guess, like, we're supposed to believe that Picard has burned all of his bridges. Also, like, she ends up having to use his name anyway. <sighs> yeah. This scene bleh, is how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Rios goes to talk to Rafi. Yes. They are, like, old friends. Yeah. They go way back. And, and he's the one who's actually concerned. So he's doing all of the emotional labor on this ship right now, which, mm-hmm. you know, good to have a dude doing that. Um, yeah. And it's, it also made me think, like, what's his backstory? So he's he's in an interesting role where he's this he's a man and the captain of the ship, and he's almost like the least explored character that we that we've encountered. Oh, yeah. And he's doing all of this, like, emotional labor for everybody else who's on his ship right now. Yeah. Um, and I was just kind of like, yeah. <laughs> evening out some gender roles here show <laughs> yeah yeah and even but, like his emotional labor is performed by himself is like performed by his like his holograms his holoclones yes yeah. yeah that's true she's still really upset about her son um he tucks her in it's really sweet picard goes to the borg ship alone he beams over to the cube into a place where he's totally alone. Why wasn't Hugh there? What it serves to do is to give him time to have like terrible flashbacks and almost fall into the abyss of the cube. We even see a person who's clearly another actor, but who looks a lot like him. Yeah. Like he imagines a bald dude with a Borg eye. Yes. Who's like clearly not there. And is just like a projection of... PTSD hallucination. Yeah. Um, We get a bit of Borg Queenie. And then he's kind of woken out of it by these two XBs. And Hugh comes up and they are like really happy to see each other. Hugh's like beaming. I, the, oh my God, I really like this actor. I'm so glad that they brought him back. Jonathan Del Arco. Yeah. And then they have this conversation about the. the like liberation of these former Borg drones and Picard's like whole worldview opens up because he's like, I never thought that we could do this on the scale. What you're doing is incredible. It's a lot kinder Mm -hmm. in its portrayal than what we've seen before when other people are just like, we've sort of seen like Soji's other supervisor just like reclaiming parts and like, 
referring to them as like the nameless and Mm. it felt a little cold yeah and but like instead of being in like that room where the stuff is taken out we're like in the room where the borg who have had their implants taken out are like having their scars healed and like being cared to like doing physical therapy yeah one of the things that picard says is that it's really good work that they're doing because it's revealing and emphasizing that underneath the like Borg collectives goal of assimilation are masses of victims Absolutely. of assimilation. I think it's really powerful and moving. I, One of the other things that I thought about this scene though, was that they talk a little bit about why they call themselves XBs. Yes. Um, and how they're they're like kind of claiming an identity about that. I support like claiming an identity and like creating a group for yourself. And I think that it is uh is potentially a misstep to make your identity a negation of what you used to be. Hmm. hmm. Which is like built into this name. Yeah, but they're saying XB, like they're not saying ex-borg it's true so it's a little better that's a good point though something to think about when you're when you're thinking about forming identity and in some ways it relates to like toxic masculinity and that toxic masculinity is often about defining being a man as the negation of of being a woman or Uh being a gay person or like anything else it's not about like embracing the thing that you are it's about being not the things that you're not yeah i listened to this really cool podcast um scene on radio yeah i love that they do a series on men Mm -hmm. and they specifically do an episode where they they talk about that and a lot of what they talk about is how um masculinity was defined by traits that would make a person a good soldier Mm. Mm-hmm. And defined by negating traits that would make you a bad soldier. And AKA that somebody who's bad at killing people. Someone who's bad at killing people. Someone who has like a lot of empathy and sympathy and like emotional awareness. We love Scene on Radio. You recommended it's it so to good. me and it's a very good podcast. It, right now they're doing a whole series about like the formation of the United States and like an investigation of how democratic the Constitution actually means for this United States to be. It's very good. Oh, but yeah, I mean, it's like that that podcast just like blew my mind because like similar to what you're saying about the Borg, it sort of portray portrays men not as villainous but as victims. It's yeah, like victims of this old, like unconscious, no longer conscious, like grand conspiracy by society to convince them to deny parts of their emotions so that they will be willing to sacrifice their lives for the good of that society, like, as soldiers. Mm -hmm. Like, similar to the Borg. Yeah, very similar to the Borg. Yeah, so I think we should take a little break. Cool. Um, When we come back, we're going to talk about what happens when Soji finally wakes up and how they escape from the Borg cube. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the fembot trope and whether or not Soji fits into it. Yes, yes, So stay tuned. Hi, IT crowd. Hi, Intertrekkies. This is Ryan. I just wanted to make a quick pitch for our PodFan. PodFan is a way that you can buy us a coffee. You can donate 
$3 a month more if you're super generous. And that money goes to helping us maintain ourselves as an independent podcast without a podcast network. Um, We've been reinvesting it back into the podcast, getting new gear like pop filters and new microphones so that we sound better. We hope to be able to advertise ourselves and generally continue to have the time to keep doing this. Um, It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to bring you this content. So if you're enjoying it, think about contributing at our pod fan that's pod.fan slash intertractional pod.fan slash intertractional you can also donate to us at our paypal which is paypal.me slash federation and fempire which is a great way to give us money one time any little bit helps and yeah we appreciate it we'll send you a sticker thanks welcome back welcome back yeah (laughs) Update. Michael Chabon has not answered my question yet. <laughs> Where is Dr. Uh, Marshall? We must know. Oh my God. Because uh-huh. instead of divulging her deep, dark secrets to a friend who would be sympathetic, she divulges them to the person who was sent to hunt her down. Obviously, this makes more sense for the plot. Right. But just like, why why introduce that character at all and then not have her come back? Like, what? what? I don't know. That's, I don't know, man. What? It's annoying. <sighs> we go back to... Uh, Soji discovering that she's only 37 months old. She runs into the arms of Dr. Fuckboy, her (laughs) Romulan spy boyfriend. Yes. And he's like, aha, I have the solution. We will go do this ritual that's only for Romulans. And that will help us figure out why this dream and like why you're only 37 months old. And like all of the all of your questions will be answered. Mm hmm. Let's go to this room with, like, lots of votive candles on the floor. Yeah. And he sort of wins her her trust over here because she's like, this is only for Romulans. And he's like, I know. He's given her so little that if he he gives her anything, she's, like, really thrilled. Um, Yeah, you're right. It's very much of, like, an abuser tactic of, like, withhold, withhold, withhold. And then when you're, like close to getting the thing that you want, then you give just enough. He also does this once they're in the room by telling her his true name. Yes. Which sounds like Ryan. Yeah. It's, it was like Kryan like, or something yeah, like, like that. Yeah, like Yeah, very much sounds like Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we have that in common. <laughs> we just have a similar haircut. Um, I just, I also wanted to say quickly, um, in that scene, we see her paintings in her room. Yeah, yes. She has an easel out, and she also has a lot of illustrations and paintings on her wall, Mm -hmm. um, which is just, it's sweet. It's a little like uh, Bruce Maddox isn't really quite her father, like Data is also her father. Right, yes. Uh, So then we go to the Zen maze. He's guiding her through it. Oh, also she's taken her shoes off again, so like a little bit callback to Risky Business Time. (laughs) (laughs) She is flashing back to being her young self in this dream. Yeah, and it's it's unclear if there's anything kind of like supernatural or cognitive or like drug-induced that's going on here or if she's just really concentrating on the dream while he guides her through the maze. Yeah, in terms of rituals that are supposed to reveal your inner conscious, like lots of candles on the floor seems 
pretty minor. He seems like the most blasé meditation teacher. No matter how inept he is, it's working somehow. Tell me what's going on in your dream. What are you seeing? What are you feeling? From her perspective, it's all in service of figuring out what this dream is supposed to mean for her. Right. But for him, he wants to know where, like, physically located the right. house that he she's in. He keeps asking her to like look out windows. Mm-hmm. His his sister is watching and so right. she gets these details that like, oh, there are lots of lightning storms and uh, there are two red moons right. that she can see out one of the windows. So they're very quickly like, that's all we needed. We just want to go find that place mm-hmm. for her. And I, I don't know if this is like a real memory from like her repressed or suppressed mm. childhood, like similar to what Dana went through. That's um, interesting. He had a, a childhood that like his parents erased. To me, it seems like it must all be constructed by her, you know, her AI subconscious because mm. she never did exist in that body. Uh, in the child body. In the child body. But she must have existed there, right? If the Maybe. location information is accurate. That's true. Yeah, it's this thing about dreams. You bring in different aspects of things that you've actually experienced, but they get mashed together in a way that is no longer like a real place. Mm -hmm. So she has to kind of like push through her fear and um, finally get like see past the orchids to her dad who doesn't have a face. She sees herself laid out on this table in parts And it's like, it's robot her, but also the parts are all made of like wood kind of seemingly. This is where we get to talk about, is she a fembot? Because (laughs) this is like a little bit of like a little hint of Pinocchio, Uh which is a different Pygmalion derived uh, myth. Oh, that's so good. Because that's all about someone who wanted a child. Mm Mm-hmm. Can I just talk about how cool it looks? It looks so cool. She looks like one of those figures that you use for drawing class. Yes. Almost. Very much. These little separations between parts of her body. And it's so obviously artificial. And they very easily could have put a robot her on the thing. Mm -hmm. But then, I don't know, maybe she would have thought she was looking at her sister or something. Or Mm. it could have been like more gruesome. You can tell that there's like a novelist at the helm. Like, it feels very literary to me. Yeah. So this Pinocchio thing is, like, in there where, where, please make me a real boy, daddy. Mm. Yeah. Well, did you want to talk about the Pygmalion myth? Yeah. So, so the Pygmalion myth, there's a person or a god who wants a companion Mm -hmm. and has fallen in love with a statue that he built. Oh, okay. So I don't know. He's a dude. I think he's He's a, a a dude, but he petitions a god. Yes. To make this statue that he's created into a real living being. Yes. And then, like, hallelujah, thank you, Aphrodite. Um, She comes to life. Then this story gets told and retold and retold for millennia. Uh, Yeah, it's one of the main influences for My Fair Lady, Mm -hmm. which is about a man who tries to reshape a woman by teaching her how to lose her dialect and uh, jump class levels. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anybody that I deemed acceptable to have as my romantic love interest. And so I create them. That person who's then who's created like the um, Pygmalion's um, creation is named Galatea. Her as herself is a very complicated 
concept, like, does she even have a self? Mm -hmm. Because of having been totally created, she is a reflection of him, the the My Fair Lady thing, too. She's, She's totally changing herself for this man. And like, how much of that is something that she's consciously choosing versus like buying into how she wasn't okay before. And like, she she has to change herself in order to to be like acceptable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like, it's kind of like these, there's like these two different strains of like people creating people. There's like something along the the strain of Pinocchio or like Dr. Soon creating data, Mm -hmm. um, where the, the artificial child is male and right. not sexualized, and it's seen as like a, a child, a child. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's the sort of gynoid fembot Pygmalion version of this. I'm sort of mashing those all together. I yeah. feel like we can separate them out, but yeah, I think they have different aspects of yeah. them. Yeah, but there's that sort of trajectory where, like, uh, like Frankenstein's bride, or like creating a, a wife out of clay, yeah. or um, like you're child lover thing yeah, it's, it's all very creepy. it's all it's all very wrapped up together because like when like when you are the creator of this being you are their parent and yet you're creating something that's meant to be your romantic partner right and so it becomes very fuzzy like from the perspective of that created being i exist because this person made me and so, like, this is, you know, this is why parent-child incest is so awful and gross and disgusting, because yeah. the power and balance of that relationship mm-hmm. is there from the get-go and can never be transformed. For example, with Data's daughter, we see none of that. He creates yes. another robot that is a woman. But he explicitly from the beginning is like, she is a child. And as you were saying before, they dress her in a way that's extremely desexualized. Yes. <laughs> this is lol we're talking about. They don't lol. try to make sexy. They don't try to make lol sexy, which is good. But going back through through the history of female robots in television and cinema. Yeah. They're always kind of some version of sexy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's specifically like the fembot trope so one of the things that i want to talk about is metropolis 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 is arguably the first science fiction film the uh auteur is fritz lang he's german it was made in like 1927 this tale of class warfare basically the robot who becomes a woman in it is is a device for entrapping the aristocratic men her sexuality is not her own and yet she's also kind of superpowered the fembot trope i think a lot about how these like superpowered beings are without their own agency they're like their creators or whoever's controlling their actions are the ones that are actually like in power here despite them themselves being well physically capable of freeing themselves from bond or like you know killing anybody that they potentially need to the the word that i'm using like fembot uh, obviously obviously (laughs) maybe obviously comes from uh austin powers yeah and um they were female uh robots with guns in their 
breasts. And their nipples were like... Yeah, the, yeah. the nipples were like the Shot gun bullets. barrel. Yeah. And they're based on these other robots from this movie, like the killer bikini machine or something. <laughs> and they're part of this this trope that includes the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. who at, at some point are like definitely fully actualized people, and at other points are like these sort of sexualized uh, objects. It includes like the robot version of Buffy and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Definitely at least two characters in Blade Runner. Yes. Possibly three. (laughs) So it's this idea of uh, a female robot who is treated like an object um, in a similar way to how women are often treated like objects Mm -hmm. in a way that's hard to separate out and uh, are sexualized in Mm -hmm. their physical presentation. They use their sexuality as a weapon. They are physically superpowered, so they are um, they are they are weaponized. They're not just weaponized; they are weapons, mm-hmm. and they're being deployed by others, mm-hmm. almost always by men or a man. Um, something yeah. that these women usually don't have or have to, like you know. One degree or another is uh, they aren't fully conscious. They they don't own their own sexuality. Um, they don't own their own consciousness. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. anytime you have a female uh, robot pop up in cinema, it's like, is this happening? One of my favorite examples in a, a film that I love but a lot of people hate is Ex Machina, mm. which is arguably both super feminist and super sexist, depending <laughs> on how you're looking at it, because it fully engages with this trope and somewhat subverts it, but then also is playing into it so much that you're like, is it a story about like women freeing themselves from the bonds of oppression or... Like, is it a story about, like, women being objectified and killing men and, like, male fear of, like, women's sexuality? Or is it mm-hmm. both? Mm-hmm. And I love it so much. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen Ex Machina. She's brought to interact with her She's, creator. like, presented to the, the cast of the new Star Wars films. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oscar Isaacs is her creator. Donald Gleason is Caleb, who's, like... In this like creepy mansion, I don't know. You should describe it because I haven't actually even seen this. They're trying to figure out if she passes for human, um, but like one of the tests is like, will she try to use Donald Gleason to escape? Mm. And uh, she does. Yeah, that's like the whole film. I recommend this film. I also recommend reading uh, critical reviews of this film because there's like a lot of love and hate for it, and it's interesting if you like this shit. My point was like, anytime. A female robot shows up you should sort of look at like how is she being treated and is she being treated differently than male robots so this has been something to one degree or another um that's been in the back of my mind since the series began how are soji and dodge treated how does it compare to how law was treated how does it compare to all these other examples what what do you think especially like especially after their activated like when mm. dodge went into killer mode when they were under attack and now soji has like finally been activated because dr fuckboy planted a radiation bomb for her to just die this could be mildly like holocaust triggering 
Oh, that's true. But she's like locked into a room and then gassed. Yeah, yeah. She's like in a gas chamber. Yeah. And they are on a mission to find the rest of her and exterminate them. Yes. They're hunting her as a member of a particular group of people, mm-hmm. not as an individual. Mm-hmm. Very and I, I don't Holocaust know if this is a coincidence or, or not, but like uh, Michael Chabon is Jewish. Uh, Akiva Goldman works on this show. Mm-hmm. And then the scene also, he says to her you're not real and you never were and they keep using like dehumanizing well especially his sister they keep using like language of like nests um abomination yeah it and so she like then gets activated and punches her way through the floor the super strong characteristic is there her sexuality is not weaponized it's a weakness in a way instead of going after her target in a seductive way she is seduced Um, i mean i think the borg queen is much more of a fembot than yeah uh soji ardage yeah for sure i mean i don't think she fits all the criteria but she's definitely engaging with parts of that trope i think that dodge and soji are not super leaning into this trope yeah which is good yeah like if anything yeah like dr dr fuckboy is using his sexuality against her Mm -hmm. which puts her in the place where her sexuality really is her own Mm. she's engaging in her sexual relationships for her own pleasure you know like so she's not using sex as something to control a man the man is controlling her with sex. Right. Which yes. makes her very actualized as an individual. Like she is the um, subject in this situation, not the object. Totally. Even though she's super hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like we also see it in how she's costumed. Like uh-huh. she's wearing a fairly loose uh, ship or jumpsuit. Um, I want that jumpsuit. <laughs> the jumpsuit is so great. Yeah, for sure. And like, well, I think she's like, cuter than the actress who played lol Mm. um she is yeah she's definitely not been uh sexualized or sexied up she just has like perfect skin (laughs) which fits for a robot yeah um which you know that that being said she is a creation and so what she looks like was the choice of someone else Mm -hmm. in this case bruce maddox yeah um but even maddox was making her in Lol's image, right. again, less about Pygmalion's Galatea and more honoring this person with whom he had a friendship, Data. Yeah, and Data's, and Lol, Data's child, got to choose her own image. Exactly. Yeah. It's a downstream effect of that choice that Lol made as an individual. Mm-hmm. I like exploring this fembot trope, though, because it's all over the place in sci-fi mm-hmm. even to the point where the arguably the first sci-fi film ever made features right. a, features a fembot the fact that this show is not really playing into that trope is a positive progression yeah yeah and another way that i think that this show is pretty feminist um i don't know if it's like overtly feminist i don't know if it has like a feminist message but it definitely has like um, a humanist message and like mm-hmm. a populist message and like a feminist message in, in that it keeps arguing for everyone's humanity and equality. Right. And um, has like a ton of female characters. Yeah. Uh, Picard runs around and like catches her as she jumps through the floors. I mean, he doesn't catch her, but 
finds her. Hugh is like, I'm going to help you find her. And then they find her. And then he's like, you got to trust me. I have your sister's necklace. And she's still like, what the fuck? Um, And then she's like, okay, fine. She's I don't have a lot of options. And then um, Elnor is there. Yes. uh, Which we knew was going to happen because they were like, under no circumstances are you to leave the ship. And it's like, oh, well, he's (laughs) definitely going to do that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely going to leave the ship. Chekhov's space like a less. Yes. (laughs) So they like go to this alcove where the queen has like a special technology that she would use to transport herself and they use it. Picard and Soji walk through a shimmering uh, wall of white and then they disappear yeah and they leave hugh and elnor to like fight off the hordes we get like one last moment of like picard engaging with his borg consciousness mm-hmm. and so it's like not just a memory of him being a borg it's like he on some level has a lot of this information yeah they retain this information like they have all of the uh, all of the memories and all of the knowledge of the collective and i think it's more of like you have to be in the right context yeah. to to have that come up, but it's yeah, there. So he's like, oh shit, this is the queen room. Right. And he was like, yeah, I know. And it's yes. like, they just know these things. Oh, there's some reference to a Romulan queen that's in charge now. Yeah. And we're like, just like, real? what does that mean? Is that real? Is that re- like, is there, is it like a, oh, now the Romulans are in charge. Like she's the new queen, quote unquote. Or is it like, there's a Romulan queen? Yeah. We don't know. I want there probably to be- find out about that or they'll, t- or they'll entirely drop it. I really want there to be a Romulan queen. I love female villains. Bring it on. Um, um, and then Elnor closes the episode by saying, choose not to die, friends, but they're going to die. Oh, yeah. He's going to kill everyone. I was like really worried about him being left behind. And then he says that line. And I'm like, oh, wait, I'm not worried about you. Yeah, he's going to be gonna fine. kill everybody on this whole queue before you get captured. <laughs> I mean, that would probably solve some of the XP's problems, assuming he doesn't also kill them. But yeah, um, yeah k- killing all the Romulans is what he's down to do next so- week. Riker and Deanna. Oh, you're so happy. I am so happy. My yeah. original ship. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm a I'm a Riker fan. He gets like a lot of hate, I think, for being kind of broy and uh having a lot of sex. Like a Playboy, but yeah, yeah whatever. But uh, I think I th- I think he's great. I think he's like pretty upfront and honest with people. Um I think we we so if you want to if you want to hear our analysis of Riker you can go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes mm-hmm. uh especially when we I think even like our very, our very first, first episode. episode. We I apologize for the sound quality. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot of Riker analysis. So we're looking forward to that and uh live long and prosper. Peace and long life. Intertractional is a production of Federation and Fempire, written and produced by Ryan Escalacy and Becca Motola Barnes. Original music by Danny Kafka. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intertractional. Tell us what you think. Join our Facebook group to discuss this episode with us and other fans. Email us at intertractional.com. You can even send us a voice memo. Visit our website at intertractional.com for show notes, images, and citations. Intertractional is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts. If you like this podcast, help others find it by taking a moment to rate and review us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a big difference. Like, I know that you don't think that Narek is attractive. I mean, I didn't say that he wasn't attractive. I just don't. I think he's like 
gross. Yeah, he is gross. I mean, I remember, I think I thought he was attractive when he first showed up. And like now I no longer do because of his personality. But recently, there was an image going around where he looks basically identical to like, emo Spock from like season two of Discovery. Like they have the same haircut, like his hair is wavy. They have the same like, like haven't shaved in two weeks like shaggy but not fully grown in beard and i'm just like real what is up with this like is this what hot guys look like is this what gen z is doing i think like, maybe yes is, is this what like the pop stars look like i don't understand why they both look the same i mm. do think that we have a trend of scruffy beardos yeah yeah well also rios is like the other like also a scruffy beardo yeah. 